the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Soapy will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Well, good evening. I obviously, as you can tell, am not Soapy Dollar, and I'm also not Stacy, his wonderful daughter. I am John Harrison, proud to be here because tonight I get to introduce the Bible Live. Soapy and Stacy are away from the studio this evening, and so we'll not be taking any calls tonight. They'll be back next week to do another live show about the Bible. But tonight, what we have, what we have for you is a series of programs that have been recorded by Soapy himself that will provide you with a little more insight into this wonderful book that we call the Bible. And uh, if you've been listening to Soapy for some time, you know that Soapy yearly, each week brings insight, brings a lot of depth and, and helps us to really understand and further our appreciation of this, of this wonderful, wonderful time-honored book. And we've got some great, great programs that Soapy has recorded. In fact, the first one is entitled Uniqueness of the Bible. So sit back. You're listening to The Bible Live right here on KSLR. Why is this book worthy of this kind of attention, not only here in South Texas, but all across America? Well, let's talk about that for a moment, how this Bible is alone. I'm quoting here Professor Montiero Williams, professor of Sanskrit, 42 years studying Eastern books from Hinduism, from Buddhism. He wrote about the Bible. Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a very wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between the Bible and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever, a veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. My second son, Sean, recently purchased a copy of the Koran and has been reading it. I read the Koran when I was in high school. You can read other books, Book of Mormon, for example, other books that claim to have some supernatural source, some supernatural involvement in their writing. Read them, and you will find a world of difference between them and the Bible. 
even in the tone of the book, you will find that there is a world of difference. Now, this professor had something more in mind than just the tone of the book, but his evaluation there after 42 years of study is that there is something very unique about the Bible. Let me start out with the idea of this. The Bible is unique in its continuity. Here is a book written over a period of about 1,500 years, 40 generations of people, written by over 40 different authors from every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, and on and on, different individuals, not only different walks of life, but different personalities and personal experiences that they had. Moses, who was a political leader, trained in the universities of Egypt. You have Peter, a fisherman, Amos, a herdsman, a farmer, Joshua, a military general, Nehemiah was a cup. He was a civil servant to one of the great emperors of the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes. Daniel. Daniel was taken from his country as a young teenager, taken over into the Persian Empire, where he rose to greatness through a series of different events and by the force of his own skill, his own talent, his own intelligence. And, of course, we believe as we read his story, by the very hand of God, Daniel rose to become the prime minister of the great Persian and Medo-Persian empires, ruling basically over nations and empires during the time of four or five different world emperors. There was Dr. Luke in the New Testament, a doctor, Solomon, son of a king and a king in his own right a king himself. Matthew, a lowly tax collector for the Roman Empire, marginalized and cast aside in his own culture, the Jewish society of his era, the first century. We all know the story of Paul. He was a rabbi, a Pharisee of Pharisees, rabidly against the gospel, an enemy of Jesus and the message of his being the Messiah, yet converted and became the great missionary of the first century. All these different individuals, all these different generations, all these time span, different places, Moses in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote his book from a dungeon. Daniel wrote on a hillside and in a palace. Paul wrote from inside prison walls. Luke wrote while he was traveling in mission journeys with the Apostle Paul. John wrote on the Isle of Patmos while he was in exile there. Others in the rigors of military campaigns. These books were written in times of war. David, for example, the great warrior king, wrote in times of war. Solomon wrote his books in times of peace and tranquility and prosperity. There were different moods. If you read the Psalms and the Proverbs, some of them were written from the heights of joy, while others were writing from the depths of sorrow and despair and failure and having been manipulated and deceived. All of these different backgrounds. They're recently married, older, younger. They're written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and written in basically three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The subject matter of these books includes hundreds of controversial subjects. A controversial subject is one which would create opposing opinions when mentioned or discussed. Even today, you could take a group of people in your church or in your neighborhood or in, even in your family gatherings. You throw out a topic and you'll be in an argument almost in the time it takes to snap your finger. So many opposing opinions because of these controversial subjects. Now, the biblical authors spoke on hundreds of controversial subjects, all of the different aspects and topics that are of interest to human beings. But what we have in the Bible is a continuity a harmony of viewpoint, of truth about these matters from Genesis to Revelation over this entire period through all of these different individuals. There is one unfolding consistent story of God's love and God's redemption of humanity. Geisler and Nix, two great professors, put it this way. The paradise loss of the Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. Whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed off in the book of Genesis, the angel stood with the uh, flaming sword so that they would not be free to be in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life, lest they eat it and live forever. We find that same tree once more in the book of Revelation. Centuries later, it is there for God's people to enjoy because we will live with God forever. This book is unique in its continuity. 
Uh, first sight, it appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. But if we inquire into the circumstance under which the various biblical documents were written, we begin to see that harmony, that unity, that view of our lives, of our earthly reality, and of the true and living God, the creator of the universe. There is such a thing as a consistent, coherent, biblical world view. In other words, it makes sense of the world we live in. It makes sense of human experience through the ages as no other book does. And that's why we believe this book is worthy of our interest and worthy of being read on the radio. The Bible is unique in its continuity. The Bible is unique in its circulation. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in all of history, in all the world. There have been more copies produced of the Bible in its entirety, more portions of the Bible, selections of the Bible than any other book in history. There is absolutely no book that reaches or even begins to compare to the circulation of the Bible. The first major book ever printed was the Latin Vulgate copy printed on Gutenberg's printing press back in the middle 1400s, I believe. For the British and Foreign Bible Society to meet the demands that it had, the orders for Bibles that they had 40 years ago, they had to copy one copy of the Bible every three seconds, day and night. 22 copies every minute, day and night. 1,369 copies every hour, day and night. Every hour. Now, in our world, with DVDs and with the Internet, it's incredible the access there is to this book. One of the first books to be put on the Internet. It doesn't prove the Bible is the Word of God, but it does help us to understand factually that the Bible is unique. No other book has ever known anything approaching its constant circulation from generation to generation. Now, it is also unique in its translation. One of the first major books translated, the Septuagint, that was translated from Hebrew to Greek for the library there in Alexandria. Septuagint, 70 scholars who helped translate the book from Hebrew to Greek, somewhere around 250 years before Christ. The Bible has been translated, retranslated, paraphrased more than any other book in existence. By 1966, this is way behind, the whole Bible had appeared in 240 languages and dialects. Today, that number would be so many hundreds. I had the privilege of watching the progress of the Bible as it was first translated to Mongolian, having gone to Mongolia three times in the early 90s. In 89, so many of the former Soviet republics then opened up and became free. Mongolia was one of those countries that had fallen under the influence of the communist empire, both from the Russians and from the side of the Red Chinese. I had been praying for Mongolia for many years because as a Native American, it is said that we descended from the Mongolian people and came down from Russia over into Alaska and populated North America. That's at least what is said by some who traced these things. So from the time of the 70s, I had been praying for Mongolia. Now, I had made my interest known to Campus Crusade for Christ and to a number of different ministries that were trying to minister in those particular regions. They knew of my interest in Mongolia, and so when the door was opened, they asked me, would you like to be among the first to take the gospel into Mongolia? So I took my white buckskins from my Native American clothing, and I went over with my guitar, and we had a good time sharing the message of the gospel, Ulaanbaatar and other cities, and we helped send the Jesus film in Mongolian across the desert to a hundred different cities in a matter of two to three weeks. It was an astounding opportunity and experience. But I got to see the Bible first translated to Mongolian. All they had is the Bible to that point in Russian. 
And I got to see the impact of the Old Testament first translated into Mongolian and the people hearing the redemptive plan and the redemptive story from the Bible about the creation of man, man's fall into sin and God's judgment upon man and the condemnation of sin, the soul that sins, it shall die, the seriousness of wickedness, selfishness and sin, and then God's redemptive plan. As he began to work it out there in the book of Genesis, promising that redemption would be purchased through a man, although he would be wounded, he would crush the head of Satan and destroy the work of Satan in deceiving man into losing that oneness and that unity and that relationship with God. A redeemer would come from the human race, a man. But then, of course, the whole Old Testament is about this plan of redemption, how God brings it together. As the human race grows, so the light of God's revelation also expands. So I got to see a people receive the gospel. I met the first modern Christian, the first convert of the modern era there in Mongolia. He was a hunting guide, by the way. I used to know his name, but it's so hard to pronounce even when you know it that I have forgotten it. Now there are hundreds of churches across the nation, thousands of believers, and the gospel has impacted that nation by this book. Unique in its translation to all of these different dialects and languages around the planet Earth. No other book has that experience. It's unique, one of a kind in its translation. The Bible is also unique in its survival. The Bible has had many enemies. One of the great enemies of the Bible has been time and air itself. The Bible is written on material that perishes. So it has to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years, but that did not diminish its style, its correctness, or existence. The Bible survived intact. The writing and the rewriting tomorrow night, we'll talk about the process by which the Bible came to us, those copiers. They weren't just willy-nilly people who decided to write the Bible down. This was a lifelong commitment and passion. Letters were counted. Great care was taken. John Warwick Montgomery, who was one of the great professors and biblical scholars and experts of the last century, says that to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books, he's talking about the New Testament now, is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically, and that means in the sense of history, as the New Testament. Bernard Ram, Another great authority on biblical manuscripts says that Jews preserved the Bible as no other manuscript has ever been preserved with their Masorah, the Masoretic text. These were men and women committed to and a passion for every word. They kept tabs on every letter, a syllable, every paragraph of the Bible. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. Scribes, lawyers, the Masoretes, whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle, Cicero or Seneca. The role of the historian has certainly been denigrated in our time, and partially it's because of this underlying modern idea that we despair of ever finding and discovering truth. Truth is real. There is truth. Just as there are physical laws that are true, that do apply consistently, universally to the world in which we live, there are spiritual laws. There are laws of sociology. There are laws that govern the human experience and guide us, and those laws are laid out so very clearly in this book. Not only has it physically survived the the rotting of paper and scrolls that would deteriorate, it also has survived through persecution. The Bible has withstood vicious attacks as no other book. Many have tried to burn it. They've outlawed it from the days of the Roman emperors to present-day communist-dominated countries. Back in the 1700s, Voltaire was a noted, famous French atheist who died in 1778. And he declared for sure, he predicted and prophesied that in 100 years from his time in which he lived, Christianity would be swept away from existence and passed into the trash
dustbin of history. But what happened? Voltaire has passed into history. While the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost every part of the world, concerning the boast of Voltaire on the extinction of Christianity and the Bible in a hundred years, what an irony it was that only 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society in Europe used his press and his own house to produce hundreds and thousands of Bibles in huge stacks. So many stories like this could be told of the persecution of the Bible through the centuries. Back in the 300s, 303 A.D., after Christ, Diocletian issued an edict to stop Christians from worshiping and to destroy their scriptures, ordering the raising of the churches to the ground and the destruction by fire of the Bible, the scriptures. The historic irony of the edict to destroy the Bible is the edict given just 25 years later by Constantine, the emperor that followed Diocletian, that 50 copies of the scriptures should be prepared at the expense of the government. (laughs) The Bible has survived persecution. It is unique in its survival through criticism. Great intellects and great professors through the centuries have tried hard to denigrate the scriptures and disprove the Bible, yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases. It's more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. The church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers, and the anvil of God's word still endures. Surviving criticism. It's unique in its teaching. No book helps to understand the human experience like this book, the Bible. It is unique in its influence on art, music, painting, storytelling, all the great stories, the really great stories that we cling to, uh, whether it's uh, Lord of the Rings or Moby Dick, the great books that we remember, all of them borrow from the great themes and truths of Scripture. God, the fallen, selfish nature of man, the life-giving power of forgiveness, all of that borrowed from this beautiful story of the Creator God, who, when His creation rebelled against Him, walked away from Him and disobeyed Him. Not only was judgment and punishment pronounced, but then He loved them enough to send their Savior to make a way of redemption. The Bible is unique in every way, certainly worthy of your reading it, understanding, and getting to know the God of the Bible. Lewis Schaefer, who is a founder and former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, put it this way, The Bible is not such a book that a man would write if he could, or could write if he would. It's an astounding book. But I would say this finally, this is a book that transformed my life as an individual. I was what they used to call an uh, illegitimate child. I was born. I'd never met my birth mother or birth father. I was passed around to different families. I was saved at my birth by a 50-year-old fortune teller who found me on the streets of Albuquerque and who took me in. Here I was, this little Apache Indian child, drifting around on planet Earth with 7 billion other human beings. No past, no present, no father, no mother, no future. And then I came into the message of this book, and it transformed my life. I was no longer drifting alone. I was a child of the King. I was an object of God's love, God's redemptive action, and that His own Son came and died on a cruel Roman cross to take the penalty of my sin. And I became a child of God, and He transformed the way I saw and understood myself. And now, 54 years later, after knowing him, I still love him and follow him. And that book still changes my life each and every day, each and every week. I hope you'll join me next time, folks, for this special series on The Bible Live. See you next time. Soapy Dollar and the Uniqueness of the Bible. Well, there is no other book like the Bible, and there is definitely no other program quite like the Bible Live, where you get to, in the span of a year, hear uh, the 
reading of the entire Bible by Soapy Dollar himself. And uh, Soapy used to do his weekly, his weeknight readings here on our station, KSLR. Now he does those online as well as the Bible Live Quiz Show, which you're listening to now, of course. If you want to listen to Soapy's readings, all you have to do, it's real simple. Get on the Internet and go to thebiblelive.com. Yep, that's thebiblelive.com. Click on our podcast and then click on programs, and there you go. And you can replay some of these uh, these programs that we're, we're listening to tonight, get more insight uh, you know, in case you missed something, whatever. You know, that's thebiblelive.com. And on behalf of Soapy and Stacy, we want to thank you for joining us this evening. We're going to be back in just a moment, take a little break. And there's more to come, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Bible Live on KSLR. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Makes you want to clap your hands and sing, doesn't it? Some great spiritual bluegrass right there. I'll fly away. I'm John Harrison, producer of The Bible Live, and that's what you're listening to, The Bible Live here on KSLR. I don't know if I've ever told Sophie this before in the in these words, but I'm just really proud to be a part of this this ministry, The Bible Live, a show that that really the goal is to strengthen people's appreciation of the scriptures. And their understanding of the scriptures bring them closer to God, to Christ and his word and all the wonderful stories and, and characters. They just come alive when, 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 you, when you read it. And, you know, Soapy's been doing this year after year after year for so long now. And yet he'll tell you that he still gets something new out of each time he goes through the Bible. And that's what one of the special things about this amazing, amazing book. Now, tonight, with Soapy and, and Stacy out, we're listening to some recorded programs that Soapy has made. And uh, we just heard a wonderful message from Soapy at the top of the hour. And now we've got another one entitled, Historicity of the Bible. So sit back. You're listening to The Bible Live on KSLR. <laughs> 
the historical trustworthiness of the scriptures. The original scriptures were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek. Is what we have in front of us today essentially a true and accurate presentation of the message of Isaiah, for example, or of Moses that he wrote in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or Luke as he wrote his gospel, as he wrote the book of the Acts, or even the apostle Paul, his letters that circulated to the churches of the first century. Is there evidence to support the historicity of the text that we have today. You may even wonder, especially many in the younger generation may even wonder, why a book in the first place? Well, we live in time and space. Everything that we feel like we know is filtered through the filter of time and space. Something that happened yesterday, we have to either remember it ourselves or we take it on the testimony of others, or something was written down, we made a note to ourselves or recorded in some way a record of that event so that we could remember it. We do this with our financial dealings. We do this in our workplaces, everywhere. That's part of living in time and space. You may say, well, why didn't God just reveal himself some way that everybody has it? Nobody has to read a book and it's available for everyone. God has indeed spoken to us and is speaking to us every single day of our lives to every human being on planet Earth. God is speaking. Listen to this from Psalm 19 by King David. He wrote centuries ago, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is heard throughout the ages. Their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Then if you flip back a few more pages, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills all the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place? What are mere mortals that you would think about them? Human beings that you would care for them? those two Psalms 8 and 19 and there's Romans chapters 1 and 2 there is a witness that God has given of himself that is not in a book it's called general revelation nature itself the sun the moon and the stars the evidence is so powerful there for a creator for an intellect for a personal being who has created all that we have he would be personal because if he has created the human race he would not be less than human if we consider humans to be the highest of the animal kingdom because of our gift of personhood intellect emotion and will, then we would not expect the creator to be less. So we have a a personal God who has incredible power, incredible intellect, goodness. All of this world seems to be created with us in mind. So we have a general revelation, plus we have the general revelation of human nature itself. Within ourselves, we see this consciousness. We are self-aware. We can think of ourselves and ask ourselves questions about ourselves, something that the animal kingdom does not do. Animals move and live and have their existence as part of their environment. They respond and react to it instinctively as part of it. Whereas we can step outside of ourselves, we wonder about reality and truth and God and immortality and morality, which brings us to another area of general revelation, and that is conscience. We wonder about good and evil. Now, the lion sitting out on the uh, plains watching the wildebeest go by or the zebra go by, he's not having discussions about, is it ethical for us to go out and eat that wildebeest there? I, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that. They don't have those kind of discussions. We 
We do, though. We wonder about right and wrong. Every culture group in all the world that's ever been found has always had a sense of ought. There are certain behaviors that are wrong, shameful, that are to be avoided and even to be punished. And then there are other behaviors that are to be encouraged and rewarded, taught to our children. Where do these come from? Conscience, consciousness, and of course the sun, the moon, the stars around. That is all a part of general revelation. God has created this world as it is. We live in a world of time and space. It's a closed system ruled by morally neutral natural law. And so if we are going to know about a God that is supernatural, a God who supersedes, who comes from outside this natural system, it will be because that God enters into our world. We are unable to leap out of this one. Even in our greatest imagination, it is very difficult for us to do. We long to because the Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. So we think about eternity. We think about immortality. We think about a spiritual realm, but we are unable to make that leap with total knowledge and understanding. We can see a lot in general revelation, but if we were going to learn more specifically about our God, and particularly about his plan of redemption, his desire to draw human beings into a relationship with himself, then God himself would have to step into time and space, act and speak, reveal himself and carry out this work of redemption that the whole Bible is about. That plan had to be carried out in time and space. It had to be restored by another man, and that man was, of course, the Messiah. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, everything points to this Messiah, this Redeemer, this righteous branch that God would send to reconcile humanity to himself. Those who want to know God now have that ability to be reconciled to God based on the merits and the atoning work of Messiah. All of that happened, though, in time and space and history. So how do we find out about it? How does that information get passed from generation to generation in the commonest way that we know? Through language, through books, through writing. That is why, then, we come to the question of the reliability of the Scriptures. How do we know that we are reading their words and that the history that they wrote about is accurate, true history? The Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures were completed around 400 B.C., We have an extant copy of the Old Testament from about 980 A.D., about 1,400 years distance between our first copy and when the writing was complete, the documents that we know of as the Old Testament. Long ago, somewhere in the mid-1900s, C. Sanders, professor of history, wrote Introduction to Research in English Literary History, and it explains very clearly and with great detail tests that we can apply to any document that would help us to determine its veracity, its reliability. And those three tests are the bibliographical test, the internal test, the external test, and we can add to that now because of modern technology. We can add to those the study of archaeology now as well. The bibliographical test is the examination of the transmission of the text. In other words, what was the process of copying, translations, and so on? Since we don't have the original documents, how reliable are the copies that we have in regard to the number of manuscripts that exist and the time interval between the original and the extant copy, the copies that we might have? We're going to have to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament in a little bit of a different light because the Old Testament was written in a very different way and it was processed and passed forward in a very different way than the New Testament. The internal test talks about the internal consistency of the book of the Bible. Does it contradict itself? Then we'll talk about the external test, which relates the Bible to any other ancient documents that were written at the same time. Are there other documents that would confirm or maybe even deny the historicity of the documents in question? 
the bibliographical test first, the manuscript evidence, the numbers of copies that were made, and how close those copies are to the original. There's a book called The Bible and Archaeology. Kenyon, the author, writes about the interval between the dates of the original composition of the books of the New Testament and in the earliest extant evidence become so small as to be, in fact, negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded now as finally established. Harold Greenlee wrote, another professor of history, the number of available manuscripts of the New Testament is overwhelmingly greater than those of any other work of ancient literature. Now, this is an interesting point about the test of bibliography. Some people say, well, with all those copies, surely that counts against the Bible. Uh, 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 uh. The number of extant copies is actually an advantage when it comes to assessing the reliability of the texts and reconstructing the original text without getting caught in huge numbers of extant copies that we have. I'll do a comparison here between the great classic work of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, written in 900 B.C. The New Testament was written 40 to 75 A.D. in the time of Christ. The Iliad, the earliest copy we have, is 400 B.C. That's 500 years of separation. The earliest copy we have of the New Testament is 125 A.D., negligible, as I just read to you from one of the great historians a moment ago. The number of copies that we have of the Iliad and the Odyssey, 643 copies that they can rely upon and use establishing the accuracy of what we now think of as the work of Homer. In the New Testament, in contrast to 643 copies, there are over 24,000 copies. That is a tremendous advantage in terms of our ability to compare and establish what is that original text. Next to the New Testament, there are more extant manuscripts of the Iliad than any other book, and that's why we chose the Iliad here as our comparison. The New Testament has about 20,000 lines. The Iliad has about 15,600. Only 40 lines, about 400 words of the entire New Testament, are in doubt, whereas 764 lines of the Iliad are questioned. That's a 5% textual corruption, comparing with one-half of 1% of similar corruption or changes in the New Testament text as we look back over those. Those changes, what are they? You can actually have a list of them. Sometimes a preposition, sometimes a name that has changed in the way that names have been pronounced and used from the Greek to the Hebrew and so on. But the New Testament is ripe with plenty of extant copies that we can use comparing copies of the versions now extant, and we can tell if the text we have today is reliable and accurate. It gives us a sense of the kinds of changes that might have taken place. That's the New Testament. The New Testament is incredibly rich in this kind of evidence. Without any hesitation or doubt, the historicity of the New Testament is so very clearly and powerfully established. The Old Testament is different because it has a different history of transmission. It was written over a longer period of time, of course. We don't have the abundance of close manuscript authority as in the New Testament. But something has happened just in the last hundred years. One of the most fascinating tales of modern times. In February or March of 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad, (laughs) the irony is not lost on any of us, was searching for a lost goat out in the desert at the southern end of the Dead Sea. He tossed a stone into a cave up on a cliff on the west side of the Dead Sea, about eight miles south of Jericho, and to his surprise, he heard the sound of shattering pottery. Something broke. 
So he climbed up on the cliff to investigate, and he discovered an amazing sight. On the floor of that cave were several large jars containing leather scrolls wrapped in linen cloth. Because the jars were carefully sealed, the scrolls had been preserved in excellent condition for nearly 1,900 years, placed there somewhere around 68 to 90 A.D., in the time of Christ, in the first century. Placed there, not written, but placed there. No publicity was given them for some years. Dr. W.F. Albright of John Hopkins University, recognized as the Dean of American Biblical Archaeologists, was the one who first recognized the greatness of this discovery. He dated the manuscript from 100 years before Christ. This discovery, called the Dead Sea Scrolls, gave a tremendous boost to our understanding of the Old Testament from the bibliographical test, the way it was passed to us. For example, there were two copies of Isaiah discovered in the Qumran Cave Number 1 in 1947. They were dated, as I said to you, a thousand years earlier than the oldest manuscript previously known, 980 A.D. Remember I told you there had been a 1,300-year distance between the finishing of the Hebrew canon in 400 B.C. and the earliest extant manuscript we had in 980 A.D. Now this one discovery shot it forward a thousand years. The entire book of Isaiah was in the Qumran Cave 1. Are we going to find in those thousand years then that there were tremendous changes in the document? Not to worry. The two copies of Isaiah proved to be word-for-word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. And the 5% of the variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and or variations in spelling of names, as I had mentioned before. Even those Dead Sea fragments of Deuteronomy and Samuel, which point to a different manuscript family, different history. They do not indicate any differences in doctrine or teaching. They do not affect the message of revelation in the slightest. That written by Gleason Archer, one of the historians who worked with those first documents that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The scrolls were made up of 40,000 inscribed fragments, out of which more than 500 books have been reconstructed. There were also extra-biblical books and fragments discovered there as well. What would happen is these would be formatted, copied, and cataloged, and then they were sent to historians. While I was in Spain, I met a priest there who was one of those who received some of the original fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls. He helped to co-author a book called The First New Testament because he found fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls that could not be identified from any Old Testament passage. The First New Testament shows copies of these fragments. Their job was to look at the Greek or the Hebrew text to try to discern what did this come from. They have to know the Greek and the Hebrew text of the Old and New Testaments by exact memory. Maybe there's three or four words and a portion of two other words on a given fragment, and they have to try to decide where did that come from. This priest the scholar was the first to describe at least one of those fragments, and then there were a series that came after it, with a New Testament passage from the Gospel of Mark, bringing the date for the New Testaments back to 65 to 70 A.D., pushing it even closer, almost as we could be, to having original text, especially from the Gospel of Mark. All of this is called the bibliographical test. Now, the internal test talks about contradictions. Now, you have to remember about this. John Warwick Montgomery wrote that literary critics still follow Aristotle's dictum that the benefit of the doubt must be given to the document itself, not arrogated by the critic to himself. So in other words, a difficulty does not constitute an error. 
Unsolved problems are not necessarily errors. Many times there were difficulties in the text in the New Testament, and then with time, with study, and with more information, we have found that there was a perfectly good explanation and no contradiction. We have to listen to the claim of the document under analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself by known factual inaccuracies. Just think for a moment, folks, about what needs to be demonstrated to be called a difficulty or a contradiction in the Bible. Certainly more must be required than just the appearance of a contradiction or just the accusation. First, we must be certain that we have correctly understood the passage, the sense in which it uses words or numbers. Second, that we possess all available knowledge on this matter, all the input that we could use. Third, that no further light can possibly be thrown on it by other discoveries that could be made. I remember they used to have a problem with the walls of Jericho falling outward. That was put down for years that that wouldn't be the way it would happen, and it must not be factually true until an archaeologist discovered, in fact, that the walls of Jericho had indeed fallen outward. Garstang found something so startling that a statement of what was found was prepared and signed by himself and two other members of the team. As to the main fact, then, there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over their ruins into the city. That's a quote from the archaeologist who made that discovery back in the early 1900s. That and the discovery of the people groups called the Horites, the Tower of Babel, and the Old Testament version of how languages came about. There are many philologists now who attest to the likelihood of such an origin for the world's languages. Remember, though, that we have eyewitness sources, particularly and especially for the New Testament, and the distance of the time of the writing to the events is very short. So the internal evidence is very strong for both Old and New Testaments, again, for different reasons and from different sources. The external evidence, the extra-biblical writings of other authors, other writings of the time, and we can compare what was written in their records, the records of the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. They had writings and histories that were preserved and that we are finding, and we can compare them with the names and the events of the Bible itself. Folks, that's what we have to share tonight about the historicity. I hope it's helpful to you. There's lots more reading and studying and research you can find, but you will find that that book you have in front of you is essentially the book that was written by Moses, by Abraham, by the prophets, by the authors of the New Testament as well. You can trust that Bible and its powerful, wonderful message. See you next time. Now, Soapy Dollar and Divine Inspiration of the Bible. We've already talked about the uniqueness of the Bible. We talked about the trustworthiness of this text. Do we have what the author in the first place wrote? These very special editions of the Bible live broadcast make you, particularly as a believer, excited about God's Word, the fact that God has spoken, He has acted, and He has caused there to be a written record of His actions. Now, God is still acting. God is still speaking. The same sovereign God who ruled over the affairs of men and nations in the times of Abraham or Moses or in the New 
Testament in the times of the Roman Empire and so on. That same God is ruling in the affairs of men and nations today with the same priorities, with the same purpose in mind, calling out a people for himself. I will be their God. They will be my people. But the Bible is so crucial and so vital to us because, one, the plan of redemption had to be carried out in time and space. So God's Son became a man. The incarnation occurred, and Christ carried out the work of redemption in history. We have a record of that, a record that we can trust in. Secondly, of course, as we see God dealing and working with real human beings in time and space, we can extrapolate from those experiences because God doesn't change. He is immutable, one of those wonderful attributes of the God of the Scriptures. We can get to know the God of the Bible and His ways, and we can apply them then to our lives as well. Now let's get to our topic for the evening. Tonight we're moving to a new topic. What is the evidence that the Bible is actually God's Word? And when we say God's Word, we're not talking about a mechanical thing where God took Paul or Moses and moved his mouth and made him say certain words, but a dynamic speaking where God involved in this individual's life spoke through this person, through his personality, through his culture, through his intellect, his understanding, and God expressed the truths about events that he had seen and watched. Often the writers of the Scriptures were describing things that they themselves did not understand. God condescends at times to man's way of thinking. Ezekiel, for example, talks about the wheel within a wheel. And John on the Isle of Patmos talks about things that in some ways were overwhelming to him, as they were to Ezekiel, as they were to Daniel and other prophets who received these apocalyptic visions and understandings. But God is at work speaking in and through these individuals. That is what the Bible claims for itself. Over 2,000 times, in the Old Testament, authors and writers of the Scriptures wrote, Thus saith the Lord. This is not me. God says, not only in the Old Testament, but throughout the New as well, as the Scriptures rolled out, there is one consistent message, but there is a constantly developing and sharpening revelation of God and His plan. There's one God and one Redeemer, one redemptive plan, but the revelation of that plan is progressive. We see it carried out through these 66 books we call the Bible. So what is the supernatural aspect of the Bible? for which we would call it the Word of God. Some of these will be in different orders if you do this study on your own, but I'm going to mention five reasons classically or traditionally understood that we can see this as a supernatural book. The first reason we think of the Bible as God's Word mentioned when we talked about the uniqueness of the Bible is this miraculous, supernatural continuity, this consistency over time and over many, many obstacles. The continuity of message, the continuity of worldview, even in the attributes of the God that it presents and speaks of. Some people falsely say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. When anyone tells me that, I'm almost certain they have not read the Bible at all because the God of the Bible is consistent from beginning to end. So that uncommon supernatural accuracy is actually one of the reasons that we think of the Bible as God's Word. The second, I've heard it characterized as the Bible has the ring of truth. If you have ever read mythology, If you have ever read made-up stories, they have the feel of a made-up story, and you would know the difference immediately. For example, if you read the Koran, if you read the Book of Mormon, some of the Book of Mormon is just whole huge portions of the Bible, but they read differently. The Bible has the ring of truth. It explains human reality perfectly, how we feel, how we react, how we would perform in different situations. And the Bible does not cover up the flaws of its heroes. King David, we know him as a great king and a great man, one who loved God, but certainly the Bible does not cover over his sins. He himself openly confesses and repents of those sins 
sins and flaws in Psalm 51, for example. There is no fanciful or mythological. Yes, there are miracles. We're not talking about the idea that there is no supernatural. Many people reject the Bible purely on the basis of an a priori or a presumed assumption against the supernatural. That we don't do. We let the text speak for itself. But things are done with a purpose, with a meaning, in a context. The Bible has the ring of truth to it. We've mentioned now the miraculous continuity, the harmony, the preservation of the scriptures. In light of its astounding claims, we would expect an uncommon supernatural accuracy, and that's what we find. The ring of truth. The Bible explains human experience as no other does. From our individual feelings and thoughts to the very nature of men and women in their groupings, their responses and reactions toward one another. The Bible clearly speaks to a very real world, the true condition of humanity. Thirdly, reasons that we believe and know that God has indeed inspired, God has breathed this word through the prophets and through those who wrote as the Spirit of God moved upon them and acted upon them to write, is the prophecies. Now, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Prophecies about individuals. Think of Gideon, for example, who was told what he was going to see the next morning when he put out the sheepskin. One day it would be dry, the next it would be wet, and so on. We see God acting in human couples and families, children, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see so many predictions. Things were said that were going to happen ahead of time and that they did indeed happen specifically as they were predicted. And, of course, the more famous, the more well-known of these are the proclamations about nations, about armies, about battles, about the weather famines and droughts that would come and difficulties that God would bring upon different people in his judgments. Some of these were given a day in advance, a week in advance, a month, or two months. Others were given 5, 10, 15, 50 years in advance or 100 years in advance. And as you listen to the Bible Live broadcast as we go through the scriptures each and every year, we point them out and you get to hear them yourself as they were given in time to individual prophets and then we can see their fulfillment. The prophecies fulfilled in the Old Testament scriptures are very very interesting and very important for us because this is one of the primary ways that the prophets themselves established their credibility as speaking from God because they proclaimed what was going to happen before it happened. And then in 100% of the cases, not like Edgar Casey or some guy who reads horoscopes and maybe one time out of eight gets something right. These prophets spoke with authority, with specificity, and their prophecies were fulfilled 100% of the time, exactly as things were predicted. There are very special group of prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that have to do with Messiah. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the first prediction of how God was going to send a Redeemer. Now God was not up in heaven wringing his hands and responding to man's rebellion when Adam and Eve sinned against God. The plan of God was set from eternity past. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world. God does just as he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. It's one of the descriptions of the sovereignty of God. So don't get the idea that God was up there making things up as he went along. This was God's plan from eternity past, and part of that plan was that for those who fell into sin and its consequences of death, spiritual separation from God, in the Godhead, the Son, the eternal Son, would humble himself and become a man. He would not act out on his own authority, on his own power, on his own rights as God, but that he would humble himself and live under the yoke of faith and trust and obedience to the Father, just like any other human being is commanded in God's Word to do. 
just like the perfect human being would do. There are over 300 prophecies about this individual scattered throughout the Old Testament, what he would be like. There were different names and titles given to him. And these are just the verbal prophecies, like Micah in chapter 5 predicts that the Messiah would be born in the little city of Bethlehem. Others talked about him being from Nazareth, how his ministry would take place out of the provinces of Galilee in the north, which was really where Jesus exercised most of his ministry up around the Sea of Galilee. There are other specific things about him, his birth, his ancestry, and events that would happen in his life, over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus the Messiah. Now, these prophecies surely represent a supernatural seal of approval that God has placed upon the words of the prophets that were written and preserved for us in the scriptural text. Who else can do that? The Bible asks several times. Now then, we've talked now about the miraculous continuity and preservation of the biblical record, then the ring of truth, the fact that the Bible explains human experience perfectly and clearly. It's not fanciful or mythological. It is a powerful, miraculous insight into the human psyche and human experience. Thirdly, we talk about the prophet prophecies fulfilled in scripture. Fourthly now is the testimony of Jesus himself. This is not circular reasoning. Strong evidence shows that he indeed was the Holy One of Israel, the long-awaited predicted Messiah through clear historical time and space evidences that we find in scripture. But once we understand that Jesus was indeed God incarnate, the Messiah, then his testimony is clearly important about whatever he speaks on. Jesus was a man of the scriptures. Jesus was a man that was part of his role as Paul says in the book of Philippians, to live under the yoke of dependence upon the Father. Jesus openly says that. I do nothing that the Father has not taught me or shown me to do. I do nothing of my own power, my own initiative, my own prerogative, my own rights and authority. I do only what the Father leads me to do. That was Jesus' job as the Messiah, to come and live out the perfect life of faith and trust in obedience to the Father. We've talked about that a lot as we read through the Gospels, so that you begin to see the life of Jesus and appreciate and the incredible accomplishment, the thing he accomplished on our behalf with his life. Jesus was a man filled with the word. He learned the Old Testament scriptures as a child, as every Jewish child did. And every time you squeeze Jesus, when he got pressure applied to him by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, his disciples, or questions from the people of that era, out came the Bible. So many of the things that Jesus said that we give him credit for, you will find the source of those sayings in the scriptures. Jesus quoted the scriptures constantly, Clearly, he had the highest view of the Bible. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, are you truly the son of God? If you are, turn that stone into bread. And Jesus says, it says in the Bible, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When the Pharisees asked him questions, tough questions about marriage, Jesus constantly appealed to the Bible. He cleansed the temple, and he justified that action of cleansing the temple on the basis of the Scripture. He submitted to the cross and to that kangaroo court that he was put through. He submitted to that persecution and to that abuse on the basis of the Scriptures. He constantly pointed the Jewish leaders themselves to the Scriptures because he said, They talk about me. Look in John chapter 8. If you were truly followers of Abraham, you would follow me. The Scriptures talk about me. They give witness of me. Jesus quotes from almost every book in the Old Testament, even Jonah and the great fish. He talks about Jonah being three days and three nights in the great fish was a sign that Jesus was going to be in the tomb for three days and three nights and then be resurrected. The testimony of Jesus is probably 
probably the most powerful testimony for the supernatural sourcing of the Bible, that it is indeed the Word of God. And if you want to know the truth about human experience and our reality that we live, you must read this book because the purpose of his writing was for him to reveal himself to us. And it's a lifelong adventure and thrill to get to know the God of the Bible. Another one final evidence that the Bible is God's Word it is life-changing. So many times we see men and women whose lives are transformed by the message of the Scriptures. God's Word changes lives. Listen to this passage from Psalm 19. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb, the honeycomb. This book changed and transformed my life. A little illegitimate Apache Indian baby abandoned at birth, left on the streets to die. A fortune teller lady came by and picked me up and saved my life and raised me and protected me for five years before I was put into a home for homeless and delinquent boys. I was a formula for failure, for a tragic life. I've met and seen over the years and ministered to minority youth with no family, no parents, no father, no background. And I've seen the odds against that kind of individual. And yet God got a hold of my life through the scriptures. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he has become a brand new person. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And I experienced that in my own life as God changed me from that helpless, hopeless little minority kid with no past, no present, and no future. God changed me and made me a child of the king. He changed the way I saw and understood myself, and that changed the way I responded and was able to love and care about others. Over the years, I've met prostitutes and drunkards and drug addicts and people caught up in all kinds of perversions and difficulties of life, up and outers and down and outers. I've seen their lives transformed by the power of this book and the message of redemption. There's a wonderful story I read about Harry Ironside, who was a preacher of, I believe, the early 1800s, maybe the early 1900s. He began his ministry in San Francisco, and I can't remember exactly all the details, but he was walking through San Francisco at some point, and he found a group from the Salvation Army singing and giving testimonies on the streets and preaching. They recognized him as a pastor of the city and asked him if he'd like to share his testimony, which he did, told the story of his own redemption and of his own coming to Christ and repenting of sin. And there was a prominent socialist agnostic in the audience that night who passed a card to him after he had spoken and said, I'd like to have a debate with you over in the science hall here in the city. I'd like to debate with you a week from now. And uh, Harry Einstein said to him, I'll gladly do that. I'll change my schedule to be with you, but only on one condition. I want you to bring to that meeting a man and a woman, one man and a woman whose lives have been transformed by your message of agnosticism and atheism. Show me that they were caught in the depths of sin and degradation and that their lives are transformed by your message of atheism, your message of agnosticism. And then I will bring 150 men and 50 women on my side who will give witness to the fact that their lives indeed were transformed by the power of this message. I remember the guy rejecting the offer of a debate on that basis. But these are some of the great evidences that we see tonight that this book will keep you from sin, as I was taught when I was very young, but sin will keep you from this book. 
This is a supernatural book, my friends, and I want to encourage you. Don't ignore this book. Don't let your pride and your arrogance against authority, against religiosity. Yes, human beings are full of sin and deceit, and things are done in the name of God, in the name of Christianity that are wrong. The Bible talks about priests and believers who abuse their authority and power and who are false teachers and false priests. But the truth of this Bible is there for you to get to know the God of the Bible and to have eternal life and forgiveness of sin and cleansing. All of that can be found in this great book, which we can rightly understand to be and to experience to be in our own lives, the very Word of God. See you next time, folks, here on the Bible Live broadcast. Well, there's our music. That's the Oak Ridge Boys. And you know what that means. It's time for another break. But we have more uplifting messages from the Bible, the scriptures, through Soapy, coming up in just a moment. So stay tuned. Go get yourself a drink, maybe a snack, and come back to the radio for more of the Bible Live right here on KSLR. Listening to the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Is the Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. And welcome back to the Bible Live. I'm producer John Harrison, sitting in for Sophie and Stacy, who are away from the studio today. We're listening to a series of recorded programs that Sophie recorded a while back. And uh, up next, we have one titled, How to Study the Bible should be as insightful as the rest of the program is, has been. How to Study the Bible on The Bible Live here on KSLR. Some ideas about how you can study the Bible. The first thing to understand is that to study the Bible is not abstract or academic. There is some academics to it. We're learning dates and times and places and names and things that took place and happened. But remember that ultimately the intent of Bible study is to learn about God, to get to know Him, the God of the Bible, to learn about His ways. We learn to think biblically, see our lives, our relationships, our jobs, our careers, our studies, our mates, our families, everything about our life to see it as God sees it, because that is reality. 
God truly is there. And God's purpose is to call out of the human race a people for himself. That's going on every day all around us. He has drawn us out as a people for himself, and now he is refining and purifying our lives by the power of his truth, his word, and he is using us as instruments of redemption in the lives of other people around us and the lives of those of our generation. That's what's going on, and the more we can think that way and understand who God is and his ways, the more then we can enjoy being involved and our lives can count for both time and eternity. Our lives have transcendent meaning because it's related to what God is doing. We really do need this book. So pray before reading the Bible. Pray. Remember that it's a relational activity. It's not just you and a book. You're talking and you're relating to God, learning about Him. Approach Bible study as a step of faith. We must trust God to speak to us from His Word, to guide our thoughts, teach us the truth about Himself, about our existence. So pray before you read. Read the Bible by faith, trusting that it is God's Word and that He is there teaching you and guiding your thoughts. And read the Bible with the intent and commitment as God enables you to obey His Word. Application is always important. We're not hearers of the Word only, but doers as well, as James says. So read the Bible with prayer, with faith, and with the intent and the commitment to obey. If we don't have that commitment to obey God's Word, God isn't under any obligation to reveal His will to us. If our hearts are set and humbled and broken before Him, and we desire to obey Him, God is clearly obligated Himself by His promises, and He is joyful and delighted in revealing more about Himself. Finally, I I would say buy a notebook and write down date and time of your study, the passage you're studying, and your observations, your questions, the lessons that you learned. Now, there are also many biblical helps in these days. Great study Bibles. I read from the New Living Translation from Tyndale House Publishers, the Life Application Bible. Notes and background information and some commentary. Other people have shared tidbits of knowledge, customs of the day, some linguistic background from the Greek or the Hebrew that sheds light on a given passage, but the emphasis is always on the idea of application, applying it to our lives. You can choose from a number of different versions today. I grew up with King James. I memorized literally thousands of verses in the King James. For 10 years, I was in a Bible memory program, memorizing about 300 verses a year. I don't worry too much about the versions. Stay away from Jehovah's Witness or Mormon versions or specifically one little group's version. There are some great versions out there today, modern versions, and sometimes you can get several and, and you'll get insights on a given verse from different perspectives. Translate Translations are one thing. Great attention is paid to translating the exact meaning of each Greek or Hebrew word. Paraphrase is another thing. Paraphrase is put in today's language for clarity, for understanding. Uh, either one is fine, but just be aware of which is which. A little reminder that the center figure of the entire Bible is the Messiah, this promised one, Old and New Testaments. The plan of redemption is wrapped up in who he was and what he accomplished on our behalf. So you can always have that in the back of your mind as you read through the scriptures. Everything is pointing toward Messiah. Some of the great tools that we have nowadays in Bible study, the commentaries, you have a concordance listing every word in the Bible, cross or child or money Pick out a word, and it will give you every passage, every verse where that word is used in the Bible. Bible dictionaries, which give you background of words, people, different themes that might be touched in the Bible. There's a New Testament interlinear Greek, the New Testament in Greek with the literal English translation underneath it, word by word. All of these are tools that can help shed light, give additional meaning and understanding of given passages. 
Bible handbooks sometimes talk about archaeological discoveries that have been made around a given passage, minerals, animals, insects, plants, warfare, money, customs, and the realities of given times in history. And of course, don't forget your Bible atlas. Even in the back of your Bible, the maps are important. People came from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the northernmost tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. Beersheba was the city furthest to the south. Get familiar with the geography of Israel, of Palestine. You can go back to the Greeks and to the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persians, all the way back to the time of the Garden of Eden, that region where the Bible history, the Bible narrative takes place. So all of those are tools. And then, Brian, talk a little bit about this computer thing. That's another tremendous resource that we have to have in mind, isn't it? Oh, yeah, with Google. I mean, you talk about concordance in the Bible. Google oh, yeah. is like the ultimate concordance there. Plus, you have apps of the Bible for the mobile devices. I have a couple on my iPhone and my iPad that I can use to not only look up what words mean, but also go through planned studies right. that they put together for us. Like on the topical side of things, I'm looking here at forgiveness, trust, and some of those are just like four-day studies, a week study. Very interesting. Something yeah. to get our feet wet, get us used to studying the Bible, to get us in the habit, to get us yeah. started. Brian, thanks a lot for that. And that does give me one idea, too. Remember that Bible study is a lifelong commitment, a lifelong endeavor. You're not going to understand some passages immediately. It's going to take time and maturity and perspective. In fact, 54 years, I've been memorizing it, reading it, studying it through seminary. But still, every year reading it through with you, I'm learning new things, new insights. It's a lifetime of study and involvement with the Scriptures. Now, what types of Bible study you can do? One, you can study bibliographically, a book-by-book book study. You take a file cabinet, for example. You've got to buy a box of these file folders, of course, and you put Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Just create a file for every book. As you study these books, you can put the results of your study in there. Or as you glean, if you pick out someone else's outline, someone else's thought about that book, then you can take it, copy it, and put it in there as well. This is all based on my literal file cabinet with paper files and so on. You can create your own outline there on your computer, and you can have the same organizational scheme. So one area of study is a book study. The author, the date, the context, the general message, maybe even an outline of each book. And remember, when you're studying a book of the Bible like that, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not part of the inspired Word of God. When Jeremiah wrote his sermons, they didn't include chapter numbers and verse numbers. That's for our benefit, to communicate with one another. So that's one kind of study you could do is a book study. The book of Jonah was very, very interesting because I was very thorough about the individual, about the city of Nineveh, details of that time and era and of the book. The second kind of study you can do, you can have a topical or a thematic Bible study or even a word study from the scriptures if you want. The names of God, the names of Messiah, heaven and hell, judgment, wrath, humility, baptism, any theme that is important to you, abortion, life, Holy Spirit, any theme that you would like, and you can study what the Bible says about that theme. And you can find these file sets that are already lettered for you, A through Z, or you can letter them yourself. So alphabetically, a topical thematic Bible study is always helpful. This is setting you up not only for one study or one year or one period of time. For years and years, I wasn't losing the benefit of all these studies. And when I'm called upon then to teach or I want to know something about a general theme, I can go to my own gleanings there, the articles and the things that I've learned through years of Bible study. Finally, you have a biographical Bible study. You can study book by book. You can study by topic, by theme, or you can study people's lives, individuals, Daniel, David, Saul, Paul, Jonah, Elijah, New Testament, Old Testament. What can we learn from studying the life of this individual? Sometimes there'll be a lot about them, sometimes a little. So there you have it, types of study that you can get involved with. Let me give you seven mistakes to avoid in Bible study. 
I'm going to list these fairly quickly. One is taking a text out of its context. A text out of its context is a pretext. We often use the Bible to just say what we wanted to say instead of actually finding out what was meant by that passage. For example, Genesis 4, God is approaching Cain about his brother Abel. Cain has murdered him. God asks, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Some might quote this to mean that we should not be concerned with other people's welfare. Am I my brother's keeper? No, we're not our brother's keeper. But that's taken out of its context. The words are spoken by Cain here, who has just murdered his brother Abel. Cain is lying to God, saying that he doesn't know where he is. And the point is that we are meant, indeed, to take care of those around us, to be our brother's keeper in that sense. Another thing can happen when you quote kind of a half verse. Remember the famous passage where Jesus says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. Well, sometimes people quote only the first half. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And we only emphasize a Christian duty to the state. We don't emphasize as well that we have a dual responsibility to the state and to God. And so it's important that we understand the whole verse, not just taking a half of a verse or the part we like, but the whole verse for meaning. Another thing you want to avoid is interpreting poetic language in a literal way. This always bothers me when I hear people on the television or the radio talking about, you mean you believe the Bible literally? Anyone that says that is either aching for a fight and they're trying to trap you or they're ignorant of what the Bible is. The Bible does have great sections that are committed to poetry. Job, the Psalms, the Proverbs, poetry and wisdom segments. And there are other segments that are clearly intended to be apocalyptic or symbolic language that is used. So we're not supposed to interpret it, quote, literally. Take, for example, Psalm 93. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. For hundreds of years, some Christians thought and taught that anyone who didn't believe that the earth is fixed and that the sun rotates around the world, it was a heretic. Well, of course, that was never the intent of the scripture. The first part of Psalm 93 states, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The psalm is about God's majesty and his power. It's not meant to teach us about astronomy. Look out the window. Even this evening, doesn't the earth seem solid and fixed? Well, the psalmist is saying here that God is strong in that same way and powerful. So understand that much of the Bible is poetic and symbolic and that we are correct and right in understanding in that way, getting the right interpretation and understanding of that apocalyptic literature or that symbolism is important. Another error we can make is misquoting a verse. You got to be careful about language. This happened to me just the other day. A friend of the broadcast called the other night when we were reading Psalm 139, troubled by the fact that God hates people. That passage actually says, should not I hate those who hate you? David, who is writing that Psalm 139, and it never really ever says that God hates a person in the text. Somehow, without listening carefully or reading carefully, he had gotten the idea that the Bible says that God hates people, this person. And of course, that wasn't in the text. And even in that case, it was just King David himself asking the question, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? By him saying that doesn't give the answer. We are to hate sin and love the sinner as God does. It doesn't mean that every Bible character, everything they say is right and correct to do. Remember when Peter cursed and saying, I don't even know Christ. I don't even know this man after Jesus was arrested in the garden. That doesn't mean that's something for us to emulate, that that's good. It shows the warts, the mistakes, and the errors of the people of the scriptures as well, even its main characters. So don't misquote. A famous one here is well known in 1 Timothy 6.10, money is the root of all evil. Well, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. The second half of the verse amplifies that. Some people eager for money, it says, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So you see the importance there of verses in context and not misquoting, understanding what the verse is actually saying. And then finally, don't just study the nice verses. The ones you like, the ones that make sense, and the ones that are beautiful. Some parts of the Bible are kind of disturbing. I recall a verse in Psalm 137, the musings of a person taken to Babylon in the exile. And he's talking about his sadness and the suffering they have felt as they've been taken out of their land. And he talks to Babylon and says, God's going to judge you. Happy is he who seizes your infants and dashes your babies against the rocks. A person's thoughts, not necessarily right, good, or wholesome, but they are his honest thoughts and feelings as he contemplates his place. And I would say this as a warning, too, about Bible study. Be careful about interpreting a scripture that denies or contradicts already established truth about God. God is omniscient. He has foreknowledge of everything. He's eternal. That doesn't mean just a long time. That means he's outside of time. God is omnipotent. God is sovereign. He's immutable. He never changes. He's holy, morally perfect, totally set apart from any other being. He's righteous. He's true. Don't ever interpret a passage of scripture in any way that would impinge upon or deny any of the settled and established unchanging attributes of God. I think I'll just leave it at that in terms of what not to do. Your best friends in Bible study are who, what, when, where, how, and why. Asking questions. Who is saying this? To whom is he speaking? What is he actually saying? What's the context? When did he say it? Where? What was the situation? What was the tone as much as we can tell? And why? What was the purpose of this thing that's being said? Sometimes the Bible explains itself. I mentioned before the parable of the soils. The disciples ask him, what does that mean? He actually goes back and tells the meaning of each of the different elements in that story. Questions are very important in understanding the scriptures, who, what, when, where, how, and why. Finally, I just want to mention that the ultimate goal of a Bible study is not just to know chapter and verse, the people and the history and the cities and the numbers and so on. Those are important. Those details can be incredibly enlightening, but not in and of himself. They are enlightening and helpful because they help us to know God and his ways. The same God who ruled in the affairs of men and nations in those times rules today. So what does it tell us about God, his intention, his activity, and his character? God in his sovereignty knows what his plan of redemption is for the human race. The Lamb of God is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Now within that context, God has given us choices to make. We choose between the options that he has given us. And God does respond to us in those times and in those moments. But God is not up there trying to solve that problem that they created for me. So don't understand a passage in any way that would impinge upon the settled, clearly established attributes and truths about God that we know in other parts of the scripture. I hope this has been helpful. How to study the Bible, how to get the most out of your Bible reading. There are many helps available today, and we should use them all. And I hope that you will have a, a happy life of growing in the Word. See you next time, folks, here on The Bible Life. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.